the confession of faith, and we will see if we can remember where we left off. We were in chapter 32 of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And we begin at the second paragraph this morning, dealing with the the future of what will happen to those who are present, well, when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth at the, at the last day. And so let's read together <clears throat> paragraph 2. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And so the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will be um, one of the most significant days in the history of the world, uh, right there with his first coming, the incarnation and his death and resurrection uh, up into heaven, his ascension. And so let's look at these scripture references. Um, as we know, history will continue until that day. The scriptures tell us that. And so there will be a generation alive on the earth when the Lord returns, um, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, as we read. And uh, such as are found alive shall not die, that last generation. Uh, but they, they will be changed. And let's look at <clears throat> the scripture reference here. First in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And let's back up to verse 13 for the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, if you can remember back this far, we had looked at the state of the souls of the righteous uh, upon death are received into the highest heavens. That's in the first paragraph. Our bodies being uh, committed to this earth, returning to dust, and awaiting the great resurrection day. We have a reference then to the souls of the righteous again um, in, uh, in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so when Jesus returns to this world, his second coming, he will bring with him 
uh, the inhabitants of heaven. He will be, bring with him the souls, the spirits of the just men made perfect, as we read in Hebrews. Uh, they will come with him. And um, as, as we looked several weeks ago now, uh, that intermediate state of separation from our bodies is not uh, the ultimate destination. That's not what we were created to be. The Lord provides a temporary dwelling for us, as Paul writes, but we look forward to being further clothed. And so here is a description of how that will take place. The Lord Jesus will bring our souls back with him, those who are asleep. And our bodies, what does it say in verse 16? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the bodies of all those who are returning with the Lord Jesus, their spirits, their souls, uh, they are returning with him. Uh, their bodies will be the very first to be raised. They will be raised and joined together with those souls coming down from heaven. And at that moment, those who are alive, we who are, are left, as we read in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so there's restoration coming with the return of the Lord Jesus. For those who have died, uh, their souls perfected will be coming back with him. Uh, they will be the first to be raised from the dead, their bodies, uh, and reunited in the air. They will return with the Lord Jesus. Um, and those who are alive at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And from that moment on, we will always be with the Lord. And so, as we read in our confession, at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. So it's not enough that we'll be caught up in the air to, uh, to meet the Lord and escort him back, because for those of us who are alive when that day comes, we need that transformation. We need that uh, glorification, that purification, the remnants of sin, our sinful nature, completely and finally transformed. The work of sanctification brought to completion within us in our souls. And also, our bodies need that transformation that those who have died and been raised from the dead will receive. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, this whole chapter, or the bulk of it, has to do with the resurrection of the dead. We'll have several references to it throughout this uh, next paragraph. So let's back up and read this passage of Scripture together. And if, if you'll begin with me in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, let's take just a brief pause and, and just note as we read this passage, what is Paul saying about the importance of this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead? Well, first of all, it, any, any discussion about the resurrection of the dead has to involve and include the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the, the resurrection that has taken place thus far that is of the kind or the extent of the ultimate resurrection at the end of time that Paul's readers were discussing among themselves. Jesus is the first fruits of that act, of that great deed, of those who have fallen asleep. No one else has been raised in the same manner. Even when we read in the scriptures about uh, people being raised from the dead, it was only just a partial work that was done, Lazarus being called forth from the tomb. But he was only put back to the state 
prior to what he enjoyed before his death. He still had a mortal body. He still had the fallen nature that he had possessed all this time. And so that's not a, a true example of what Jesus' resurrection involves. When he is transformed, he is given a, a body of a new character and nature, new qualities, an imperishable body, as we're going to read. And so the resurrection of the dead is at the heart of the gospel. That's the second thing in light of it being so connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, if This isn't something that we can argue about as Christians in the sense that, you know, good people disagree on this. No, you've lost the gospel, Paul says. Uh, we, our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. All of this is in vain and we're, the, of all people, the most to be pitied if there is no resurrection of the dead. Why is that? Well, again, Jesus is, is taught in the scriptures, in the gospels, being raised from the dead. And so if that's actually not true, as Paul says, we're misrepresenting God. We, he, he's uh, being lied about by his own word. That's impossible. That We couldn't believe anything else. And this marks the culmination, the completion of the work of salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. The book of Romans even says that we uh, are justified through his resurrection. And what does that mean? Well, this is, the, this is the completion of that great work that Jesus came to accomplish. The payment for our sins is accepted, and he is received. He's raised from the dead. He's completed his work and he has accepted, his work is accepted on our behalf. And all of the consequences of sin that the Lord Jesus suffered from in his mortal body are done away with at his resurrection. The Lord Jesus, of course, never sinned. But what did he undertake for us? He was born of a woman. He was born under the law he took of our nature which is marked by the consequences of sin sickness and mortality and all of the suffering that goes along with it this is when jesus himself is delivered from all of that the consequences of sin no more have anything to him but he is raised with an imperishable eternal immortal body that can't ever be sick it can't ever die again. And that is not just glorious in terms of the Lord Jesus, that we have a living Savior. That's, of course, extremely important in the gospel, that we have a living Savior. But it also shows us the full extent of the work of Jesus. He's not just come to change how we, how we have a sense of guilt in this life through the forgiveness of our sins, but he has come to completely deliver this world from sin and all of its consequences, including ourselves. We're going to be delivered from the sinful nature that we were born with and conceived in. We're also going to be delivered from all of the consequences of sin, the curse that God put upon this world because of sin. We're going to be delivered from that, and that's not accomplished until the day of resurrection. That's when our bodies are glorified 
are made alive never to perish again. And that marks the glorious completion of the work of the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And so as we read in verse 19, if in Christ we hope, have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We, we have hope in the life to come because of the promise of God and because of what Jesus Christ has undertaken for us. As Paul writes in Philippians 1, that he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's what we're looking at. This matter of resurrection, it's not just a peripheral issue, but it, it, it lies at the very heart of the gospel in terms of the resurrection of Jesus and the completion of his work of redemption. So if we keep reading then, in verse 28, we'll pick up, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on account of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, we'll pause again. This matter of... Uh, being baptized on account of the dead, Paul is, is speaking of himself and the other apostles in terms of the commitment and the dedication of their lives to the gospel. Uh, what fools they were if there is no resurrection. They're committing the entire balance of their, their earthly lives to hardship so great that it's de described as just being given over to death. There in verse 31, Paul says, I die every day. You can read his testimony of all the hardship he endured in the ministry of the gospel. Well, what's the point of all of that if this life is the only life there is? You're just wasting what little bit of time you have in, uh, in a, a meaningless sacrifice if there is no resurrection, if there is no life to come. That's Paul's argument here. And notice, he, he urges them. Uh, apparently, they, they had those among them who were teaching this very thing, that the resurrection is a myth, that the dead are not raised, this life is, is all there is. What would be the obvious conclusion of that thinking? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <coughs> then he goes on to say, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. That's another important reminder of just how central this teaching of the resurrection is. This is the, the hinge on which how you live your life turns. If you live your life in light of the resurrection, then you are going to be as Paul, investing yourself, sacrificing all of your comforts as needed in faithful service to the Lord Jesus with an eye toward this short time that we have is a time of service 
and investment and sacrifice because the day is quickly coming when the, our, our few days on this earth come to an end. And if, if we are found faithful, what has Jesus promised? If we believe in him and carry out the fruits of repentance and of obedience to our God, he has promised to receive us into his presence with joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's why we would invest. But again, if we don't have regard to the resurrection, then what is the natural tendency and outcome in our day-to-day living? Well, you just live for the moment. You live for what you can enjoy for yourself today. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, it might sound extreme to to think of someone who would profess to be a a believer in Jesus and deny the resurrection. It's actually something that we've seen recently, again, rear its head in Christian circles, people saying the very same thing the Corinthians were, that the resurrection uh, is is just some... uh, metaphorical uh, reference to a, a new life that we're enjoying now what what error but we don't have to um, outright deny the doctrine of the resurrection to have a tendency toward this if we just simply ignore it in our lives we become those that practically are going to struggle with this we're going to have discontentment a lack of joy a lack of purpose. Uh, We're going to struggle with self-centeredness and thinking in terms that aren't those of a a soldier girding himself for the battle. And so we need to be, we need to take that to heart. Uh, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Now, this is where apparently they had these clever-sounding objections that they uh, felt secure in denying and rejecting the teaching of the gospel. Uh, these, these questions, I think, were designed to stump those who were teaching the resurrection. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Uh, Paul Paul gives us a a very down-to-earth example here of how this isn't outside of your ability to comprehend. This is what happens every time you plant a seed. It is committed to the earth. It is split apart. It doesn't come back out as a seed. It comes back out with a new expression of life. Verse 38, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, And the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 
So first, the first answer Paul gives is, you're, you're arguing with God. He's the one who says he's going to do this. Do you think he's unable to do this in a way that you couldn't conceive of? Uh, look at the life cycle of a plant. You, you don't understand the wisdom and the power of God. All, all the flesh that he has created, it's not all the same. Uh, you, you are making an argument that somehow our bodies that we can see and witness and uh, observe couldn't, um, couldn't undergo and, and, and sustain the type of immortality that the Scripture promises. But not all flesh is the same. And even if we look to the heavens, there is differing measures of glory in the heavenly bodies. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so, in other words, how did we end up with the body that we have with all of its weaknesses and with all of the decay and all of the aging and the sickness and the death? Well, we inherited that from the first man, Adam. He was created of dust and then he fell into sin. And we have borne his image and we have carried in our very bodies the testament of God against sin and the consequences that we also taste of. But if that's true, that we have been uh, manifesting the image of Adam, the man of dust, how is it so hard to understand that we shall also in the same way bear the image of the man of heaven? We will be transformed as his children spiritually, and we will partake of the nature of his body. In verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And there it is again. The connection that is always made in the scriptures, explicit or implied, that we are to live our lives today in light of the glorious future that God has revealed to us and promised to us that will come. And so there we have it. There in verses 51 and 52, uh, the first of these references in our confession to this chapter Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so uh, it would be wrong of us to consider the promises of God and to think about the, the glory of an immortal kingdom, an eternal kingdom that God has promised, and to, to doubt those promises on the basis of what we experience day to day. That's not how we will inherit this. As Paul writes, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, but we will be changed. Those raised from the dead will be raised imperishable, and those caught up to meet the Lord in the air, those who are alive when the Lord Jesus returns, will also likewise be changed. Now, when we say that we'll be changed, it's important also to remember the teaching of Scripture that we will still be recognizable and we will still have our own bodies. So it's not, it's not as though we are going to be recreated within some new existence, something such as the Eastern philosophies teach. But no, it will be our very person, recognizable one to another on that day, transformed, perfected, made immortal, imperishable in a way that we can't comprehend. Yet nonetheless, it will be our own bodies that will be raised on that day. And we see this in the Old Testament, in the testament in the testimony of Job, in Job chapter 19. You remember he's in great distress. Uh, he has lost almost everything. He has uh, been suffering with the loss of his health, with terrible disease afflicting him. And here is Job's hope that he clings to in verse 25 for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth it really is an amazing testimony considering how scant the revelation of these promises were yet it's a reminder that God was able to use these promises the revelation of his word even par the partial revelation of his plan uh, to awaken faith and to call to himself his children. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, 
Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Uh, Job has confidence that God is his redeemer, that he is coming, and that when he comes, the, the work of redemption he will accomplish goes beyond just the forgiveness of Job's sins to include the restoration of his body that Job it fully anticipates is being destroyed. He doesn't have a short-term hope. He has every expectation that he's going to be destroyed uh, under the afflictions that press down on him. And yet he looks beyond that to this hope that he will be raised to life, his body will be made whole again, and he will see his Redeemer stand upon the earth. And so it is our own bodies that the scriptures teach us to have hope that uh, we will inherit the kingdom of God ourselves, transformed certainly, but nonetheless our, our same bodies. These verses that we're next pointed to, we've just read in 1 Corinthians 15, but notice in verse 42 again, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. In other words, the quality, the qualities of our bodies are changed. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So the two things that these these short phrases teach us to the point of our confession first of all the qualities of the of of the body are changed are different uh, there's a tremendous contrast between how it is when it is sown how it is when it is raised but the second thing is notice that it is the same body that is changed it is sown perishable it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's the same body that we know now that God loves. He loves us. He made us. He loves us. And he is at work redeeming us. And one day will complete that work in completely restoring us in every aspect of our being, including our bodies will be delivered from all the influence of sin. And so our confession says, All the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And we just looked at both of those references. So that's the, that's the culmination. That is what completely accomplishes the defeat of the serpent as God promised there in the garden that on his belly he would go and dust he would eat all the days of his life. Everything that the evil one sought to accomplish to bring about God's destruction in judgment of his own creation 
God undoes through the work of Jesus Christ. All of his children are not only forgiven, but are completely restored to the glory that was lost through sin. All right, let's look then quickly at this third and last paragraph of our chapter. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. And so let's look at Acts chapter 24. Here Paul is testifying before Felix, who was a very fickle and weak man who only cared about pleasing men. Here Paul is testifying and he he says in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. There is a resurrection of the just and the unjust. In fact, all men who have ever lived will be raised when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 28 and 29. But um, we will back up to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now that's, that's a spiritual resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus We're dead in our sins, as we read in Ephesians 2. And the Lord Jesus comes with his voice and calls spiritually dead people to life, gives them faith to believe in him. And in that moment, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Jesus teaches here in verse 24, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And that's what he's speaking about. This is happening. He is calling people to life and giving them eternal life. Look, though, at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. And so Jesus, uh, he speaks now about another resurrection 
having taught them about the his ability to call the dead to life of them passing from death to life upon their believing his word uh what does he say he said that that hour is coming and is now here in verse 25 when he is calling the dead to life spiritually then in verse 28 he says do not marvel at this for an hour is coming now it doesn't say it's now here this time an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out so don't don't tell yourself oh i don't think jesus can call the dead to life there will be a day when no one can doubt this when he will not only call someone spiritually to life but everyone who are in all the tombs on this earth will come out in answer to his voice notice again those who have done good to the resurrection of life and we see this theme again again and again in the scriptures in terms of the great day when jesus uh, when he enters into uh, that great day of judgment there is a focus upon the evidence that is presented in that courtroom we're not we're not saved by our good works certainly we we should know ourselves in the gospel enough to know that it is by grace alone uh, by faith alone in jesus christ alone that is how we're saved but on that day god in heaven is going to show those who have been sinners who have rejected the gospel he's going to show the difference he's going to show the evidence he's going to show that this uh, confession of faith in his son had to be more than just words on that day because there will even be some who step forward saying lord lord we've made it to the great day and we confessed our faith in your son and what is he going to say then depart from me you workers of lawlessness i never knew you if it was not accompanied by a change of life by the fruit of obedience that is what god is going to look for and point to on that resurrection day and so that's why jesus describes these two groups in terms of the fruit of their lives rather than the state of their hearts he's pointing to the things that everyone can observe and cannot be denied and this will be the grounds upon which he tests and shows similar to what james teaches the claims of someone about their faith in his son did you believe in my son well let's look at your life let's look to see the fruit of that claim and so jesus says come out those who have done good uh, to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment and so it's sobering to think about this resurrection when god is going to uh, send his son when jesus comes again and he is going to raise all of the dead not just his children that's what first thessalonians focuses on but john 5 and these other passages teach us that this resurrection is for the just and the unjust and if we turn back to first corinthians 15 um, 
we'll look just at verse 42. The bodies of the just, as our confession says, by his spirit unto honor and be made conformed to his own glorious body. And we've read these verses, but verse 42. Uh, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And then down in verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we'll then reflect and bear the image of the Lord Jesus in terms of his perfect godly obedience and his character, that aspect of the image of God is going to be shown forth in us, but also as the firstborn of men, as the first man to ever overcome all of the consequences of sin and enter into this imperishable, eternal uh, state with his body completely transformed. We're going to bear his image in that as well. And our body will be made conformed to his glorious body. Let's finally look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And again, this shows up over and over in the gospel, in the preaching of the apostles. It's not just something that could be taken or left. It's at the very heart of the apostolic gospel. In verse 18 of Philippians chapter 3, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And again, notice the connection that is made. Paul is writing about these who are, uh, to his great grief, walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, what, it, what characterizes them? Well, their end is destruction. They don't necessarily see that coming. Their God is their belly. That is, their, their immediate appetites. That is what they're living for. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here, in, in the very face of the gospel being proclaimed to them of God's Son coming to redeem us all from our sins and from all of the suffering and misery and fallenness of this world, of the great kingdom that he has introduced, and of the possibility of our citizenship in that heavenly kingdom. They deny these things and prefer, in fact, living in this life, walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so that manner of living, of denying the reality of the gospel, of denying the, the life to come, of denying the resurrection of the dead, leads to a life of debauchery and ungodliness. How is that contrast in verse 20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It's much more than Paul just saying the Lord Jesus will come back again at the end. But it's a description in contrast to those who reject the gospel and live for themselves and their appetites in this world. The description of God's children is that we know that our citizenship is in heaven. That is part of our perspective day to day. And we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for the Lord Jesus and his return. We're praying for that return. We're waiting for it. And we're living our lives in light of the work that he is doing and will complete. Look there in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what we're, our day-to-day perspective is focused on, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just in terms of what he has done, which is certainly imperative that we remember in the, in the, the coming to this earth, the accomplishment of all of the duties of obedience under the covenant for his people, and the payment on the cross for the sins of his people. There's no life apart from that. But also remembering and looking for the continued work, the completed work of the Lord Jesus as the Savior. This this kingdom that we are citizens of, we're praying for it to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is in the prayer where we're praying for our daily bread. What does that tell us? Well, these petitions, they're all to be uh, commonplace, uh, the very daily experience of the child of God, to know and remember who we are and where our citizenship is and who we're serving and who we're looking for to return and what that return will mean. It will mean transforming our lowly bodies. And so that's why... The Christian perspective is uniquely hopeful in the face of some of the most terrible events and experiences documented in the history of the world. God's children have retained hope and joy because of who we belong to and the great promises that are ours that no one can take from us. You remember that strange encouragement Jesus gave his disciples. He said, do not fear those who can only kill the body. Well, in our natural thinking, that would be the very person we would be afraid of. But Jesus says, no, don't fear them. They can only kill the body. What does that mean? That the extent and the limit of their power and influence even as allowed by the providence of God, it cannot extend past this short time in this world. And then we go into our inheritance and we experience the complete victory of the Lord Jesus when he returns from heaven and everything is made new. And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, that same conclusion, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so this, this short chapter on the resurrection of the dead, of the state of men after death, it is 
a crucial aspect of the Christian faith, of the believer's perspective. It is crucial to the gospel and something that we should focus our hearts upon more often. Hopefully we've been blessed to look at these passages this morning. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to be our Savior. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our present comforter and bringing near the presence of God uh, into our very hearts to live with us, to encourage us, to strengthen us and sanctify us, and walking with us to bring us through the steps of our pilgrimage as we seek to live for you and serve you and build your kingdom and see it come and bring all things in subjection to the authority of the Lord Jesus and, and to recognize his rights and claims as he sits upon his throne. Lord, as however you're pleased to bless these efforts, we thank you that we have the privilege of offering up our service to you and our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we pray that you would encourage us and help us to encourage one another with these words as we're urged to in your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to make uh, your return and our own resurrection from the dead uh, a daily source of encouragement and comfort and strength to press on in your service. And we do ask that you would bless us as we gather to worship you with the rest of of your people in this place and any who may be visiting with us Lord please touch their hearts with the gospel and draw them unto yourself that they might have life and life abundant we pray in Jesus name Amen